Hi, this is Lucy Nalpathanchel, and I'm here with Katie Talarski, Senior Director of Storytelling for Connecticut Public. Hi, Katie. Hi, Lucy. Uh, We're here to talk about a new hour of programming that will replace our Wednesday weekly news roundtable. Starting January 13th, when you download this podcast, you'll still hear a focus on politics, but we're changing it up. Instead of a roundtable discussion with reporters and analysts, we're inviting elected officials from around our state to answer my questions and yours. And Lucy, that's been something you've been doing on Where We Live since the pandemic began, like your monthly check-ins with the governor. But who else will listeners hear each week? Well, I definitely want to continue talking to the governor regularly, but also to municipal leaders like mayors and selectmen. And of course, we'll continue to talk to leaders at the state capitol and from members of Connecticut's congressional delegation. Will reporters and analysts also be part of the show? Yep, you'll still hear some familiar voices to give us that analysis. There are a lot of great reporters who cover policymakers, both here in Connecticut and in Washington. And I want to lean on them to give us more context around the issues politicians are talking about. So if you're a news junkie, you can still get the latest in politics right here each week. Or you can subscribe to Where We Live on your favorite podcast app to get this episode and others focused on Connecticut, live conversations delivered right to you. Do you have a suggestion of who I should interview? Email us, live at ctpublic.org. Because if you're going to forget a town in Connecticut, why not forget Danbury? Because, and this is true, Danbury. John Oliver, if you're listening, and I know you're watching, now, now you can't leave. And I stayed up, appetizer, calamari is available in all 50 states. I say it was a train wreck in the show, but that would be unfair to trains and There was a lot of bleeping in 2020. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Those are some lighter moments from a pretty serious year, including former Danbury Mayor Mark Boughton's tongue-in-cheek rivalry with Last Week Tonight host John Oliver. Also in the mix, Rhode Island Democratic Party Chair Joseph McNamara extolling fried squid during the roll call of states at the Democratic National Convention. And comedian Leslie Jones applying an old joke to the current year in the Netflix special, Death to 2020. Now, the year started with an impeachment trial and then a virus crashed our hopes and dreams, left many stuck at home. But that didn't stop Americans from voting in historic numbers. Rona is sticking around after the new year, but thanks to vaccine science, we can be hopeful in the months ahead. Let's welcome our panelists as we say good riddance to 2020. Kevin Rennie is here, a Hartford Current columnist and former state lawmaker. He's also co-host of Face the State on WFSB. Kevin, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Good morning. Bilal Saku is also with us on Zoom, Associate Professor of Politics and Government at the University of Hartford. Hi, Bilal. Good morning, Lucy. And Colin McEnroe is here, host of The Colin McEnroe Show, also a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Hi, Colin. Good morning, Lucy, Bilal, and Kevin. And you can join us, too, on Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. So, Bilal, I'll start with you. How would you sum up 2020? (laughs) Wow, 2020 has been a really, really rough year for a lot of the reasons you laid out in your opening comments. And you know, certainly going into 2021, you know, the hope is that things will improve. And as bad as 2020 was, um, I don't think the bar is that high for having a much better year. If we can get this COVID vaccine out there to people, 
if we can get higher ed and K through 12 back on track, if we can deal with these issues that were raised by Black Lives Matter, we'll be off to a great year. Kevin, how are you feeling? I have found uh, 2020 disorienting. And um, uh, as we uh, as we come to the end of it with us, with the predicted surge in the coronavirus uh, impinging on um, a lot of what we would normally do, uh, I'm, I am nevertheless hopeful because of the uh, start of uh, inoculation with vaccines and the uh, defeat of Donald Trump and uh, his uh, with just 21 days left in office, I, I feel uh, democracy uh, redeemed itself. <laughs> so uh, one good thing to come out of, of 2020. What about you, Colin? Uh, when you think back to um, the things that we've had to think about and the sacrifices we've had to, made, uh, to make, uh, what are some thought of your thoughts of 2020? I think a lot about how municipalities and police departments and states often have these so-called disaster simulations where, in fact, they, you know, they create uh, a theatrical version of a disaster with people, you know, paid to lie on the ground and be bodies and stuff like that, uh, just to see how their response is, which which things are need tuning up, which things are working really well. So even when they do that, they don't do... Uh, a pandemic, uh, a, uh, a time of great racial unrest and, and, and demonstrations in the streets uh, all over, uh, and a president who won't leave office all at once. Uh, so we've been through not a simulation, we, we've, but, but, but we've been through something that does the same thing. It tests our institutions. It tests everything that we've put together to call a society. And, and we found out that some uh, of the institutions had a kind of plasticity that was really helpful. And some of the institutions were brittle and some of the institutions were almost inert. Uh, and so, yeah, 2021, I think, is going to be taking all the lessons we learned from the disaster simulation that wasn't a simulation uh, and applying them and fixing the things that don't work. Hmm. You talk about us being tested. How would you rate uh, Americans uh, sacrificing this year, Colin? Well, I, I, this will be an unfashionable opinion probably, but I, I don't think that we did very well in that category. I think in some ways it's kind of an exposure to me uh, of the libertarian philosophy, which is that government should intrude as minimally as possible because people can plan their own desti destinies and figure things out. Well, we saw what happened every time government did not intrude forcefully uh, in the pandemic, which was that people behaved recklessly and irresponsibly. Uh, we have this insane case rate, insane death rate. Uh, you know, we have a, a death rate that's way out of proportion to our percentage of the world's population. Uh, I would say that, you know, in a way, what we saw in terms of human behavior in the United States was an advertisement for stronger government controls, at least in situations like this. I don't want a big, strong government all the time, but but in a pandemic, it, it seems like we need it. Mm. Kevin, how do you react to Colin's points? Speaking of, well, to Connecticut and, and the beginning of the pandemic, I thought people were remarkably compliant. Um, in the in the Northeast, uh, and I, I I do think it's important to remember that the majority of deaths in Connecticut were in nursing homes, mm -hmm. and our government. If you speak of a strong government, uh, our government failed our nursing homes. 
and they're just there they did um for what whatever reasons we ultimately discover they they were not prepared uh and they did not act quickly and effectively with our nursing homes if uh if if you, you know, the number of people not in nursing homes who died was still it was still high but it would not have placed us in the top few states uh in the united states for per capita death rate from covid so uh, but i do think that that uh people were were compliant and uh helpful to each other and uh kind in many ways and um uh these last few months have been uh, uh a disappointment but we knew there was a surge coming and it's it has been uh our 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 fractured political views in this nation, which uh, run uh, a lot deeper than uh, many of us thought, uh, are, have revealed themselves in the reaction to the uh, to the pandemic. And that is, uh, I hope, there are lessons in that that going forward, uh, we will have leaders who will who will try to address that. Mm. Well, how about you uh, weigh in on this uh, question of, you know, obviously Connecticut uh, would be seen uh, to many as an example for other states and how uh, our government handled this, although there are people in our state that also think government went too far. I mean, how do you weigh in on uh, these points that both Colin and Kevin have made? So I guess if, if I'm around in a hundred years when historians are trying to write about this moment and what went right and what went wrong, I think the reality of this is probably somewhere between what Kevin is saying and what Colin is saying. I think, you know, what really stands out for me in the difference between perhaps Connecticut and what happened nationally was really leadership. Um, what this moment called for was real leadership, someone who could talk to the American people about the seriousness of the threat, about what we needed to do as a country in order to be able to weather this threat. And we just saw a colossal failure, a criminal kind of failure at the national level on, on the part of this president who didn't take it serious from the very beginning. And a lot of the people who, you know, worship him and, you know, almost like a cult-like figure um, took him at his word that this was no worse than the flu, that we didn't have to take this serious, we didn't have to wear masks. And that political divide that Kevin sort of alluded to, you know, really exploded on the scene. But I think the, the thing that really struck me the most about how we handled this, this moment was that it really exposed the deep structural problems that exist in our society, especially along race and class lines. The people who bore the brunt of this you know, pandemic were the people who were the most vulnerable and the most exposed by this. And so those frontline workers, black and brown people, um, our, uh, you know, our, our parents and elders who were in nursing homes, I mean, they really took a hit with regard to COVID as Kevin has suggested. And to me, you know, it's, it's really mixed about, you know, what are, how we dealt with this. But I think in, in many ways where we saw stronger leadership, like we saw here in the state of Connecticut, we've weathered this a lot better. I just read in the, in the current that our numbers have stabilized, even with that expectation of this huge jump that would occur because of Thanksgiving. And again, a lot of that can be attributed to the way in which leadership handled this, how serious they took it, and what they encouraged us as citizens, you know, here in Connecticut and across the country to do in order to deal with this. 
Mm. Colin, uh, can you talk about where we stand right now when we think about that first wave and how bad things looked in the spring? And now we're seeing, uh, again, cases growing. But are we in a better place? Yes and no. Um, in, nationally, no. Um, for example, in hospitalizations, I think we have 124,000 people hospitalized in the United States right now. At, at the so-called peak of sort of March, April, May, it was around 60,000. So we have twice as many people hospitalized for COVID right now as we did in the so-called you know, beginning worst time. Um, you know, here in Connecticut, I, I, and by the way, I just want to kind of agree rather than disagree with Kevin. I do think that when you talk about Connecticut, Connecticut is a, a pretty impressive model for, as Kevin says, compliance. Um, you know, the stuff that I was talking about was happening around the rest of the country where you, yeah, and, and I agree with Bilal as well. When your leader is Ralph DeSantis, you know, you, you just get different results <laughs> than when it's Ned Lamont. So, you know, um, here in Connecticut, we're doing better. Uh, on the other hand, whenever we talk about this stuff, we're we're ignoring a lot of things, including just how completely slammed our healthcare workforce is right now. I mean, you know, people are kind of being ro- nurses are being rotated around to floors that they never work in. There's like just a lot of people out, uh, not only in hospitals but uh, in rehab facilities and you know, continuing care facilities, stuff like that. Uh, they're short, short-staffed either because people get sick or people just just are, are burning out. So when we talk about the numbers here in Connecticut, even though, you know, they're they're better numbers than most places have, there's a huge human cost behind all, all of those numbers. You know, and then in terms of, you know, what vaccines can do for us, it's a, it's going to be a long process and probably longer than we thought. There's clearly a last mile problem with vaccines. We have 11.4 million doses distributed, but 2.1 million have actually gone into people's arms. Uh, there's there's a distribution problem. There are doses that are essentially sitting on shelves, not getting uh, into the population. And I think that's going to continue. Um, we we need a tremendous we need to be vaccinating vaccinating somewhere around two to three million people a day in order to get herd immunity sometime in the summer. Uh, that's even with a lot of help from people who've already you know lived through their own infections and presumably have some kind of durable immunity. So. You know, the the miracle was that we developed vaccines so quickly, but accompanying that miracle are some stark realities just about how, you know, how we get things to people. And, and Bilal's point is valid there uh, as, as it is in other places, too. I mean, there's also some disparities ultimately in terms of race and, and socioeconomic conditions, you know, who's going to be benefiting from some of the new medical technology the quickest. But right away, we got to make we got to get these things off the shelves and into people. Mm. Uh, Colin talked about uh, the enormous uh, stress that uh, healthcare workers are under, but even the emotional scars on uh, so many of us, uh, Kevin, when you talked about um, how the state uh, failed nursing home uh, residents uh, early on in this pandemic. Uh, so many people have died uh, from uh, this virus, and it will change how we interact with each other uh, even in 2021. What do you think, Kevin? Oh, I think it will. I, I think uh, it will be uh, a while, even as after the uh, vaccines are reaching a wide distribution, that people will go back to uh, movie theaters, for instance, in the numbers that they did when the year began. Um, 
I, I think a lot of uh, our traditional social socialization is going to take a long time to uh, to get back to what it was, um, because uh, this is a well. Let us hope this is a once in a lifetime event, mm. and uh, we are all going to remember this. And uh, a year is a long time, and uh, that it, it has made an impression on us that it's it's going to uh, stay and uh, affect how we live into the future. Mm. And the economic pain on so many uh, families, including here in our state. Uh, Bilal, you brought up uh, the president's uh, denial of how bad it really was and uh, the lack of planning uh, and help uh, to many states dealing uh, with this virus. Uh, Now we see uh, President Trump uh, signing uh, this uh, relief uh, package uh, to help so many uh, states and communities. I mean, what were your thoughts when you were watching uh, this play out in D.C.? Yeah, I was actually horrified, you know, by what I saw um, occur. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm one of the folks who, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that the president has, you know, recognized that that was a very stingy stimulus um, package that was offered to the American people. Many other countries, European, Canada, and others are doing a much better job of supporting workers and trying to help people who are running, have run out of money, not running out of money, but have literally run out of money to pay their bills, to pay their rent, are faced with, you know, the stark reality of being put out on the streets um, in the middle of a pandemic. And so to see Congress make an effort to try to address this issue after a bill had been passed months ago and was blocked by Mitch McConnell Um, to finally see some action is certainly something to be happy about. But at the same time, we should also recognize that, you know, if there was ever a Grinch uh, and, you know, (laughs) who stole Christmas, um, Congress operated like a Grinch this year by not giving the American people exactly what they wanted, which is relief and help through this, you know, terrible, terrible moment that we're experiencing as a country. Just very quickly, let me just sort of say something about what Colin raised about vaccinating people. I think also what will be critical is that we've got to deal with this lack of trust on the part of people of color about this vaccine, um, which is not unfounded. There's a long history of mistreatment by the healthcare system, by the government towards communities of color. And so, you know, part you know, part of understanding this lack of trust is to really reflect on the realities that we have very systemic problems with the delivery, the quality, and the access to healthcare for communities of color. And this is a part of what needs to be addressed in order to get this vaccine out there and to reach this herd immunity that Colin talks about. There is a lot of concern about this in community colors. So public education will be very critical. Um, in order to move us forward as a country. Lucy, can I say one quick thing about the the mm-hmm. stimulus package? You know, when my son was eight or nine years old, he and I started playing uh, Madden, the you know, NFL video game. <laughs> and because he was eight or nine years old, he would do stuff like he would punt on second down. You know, he would um, uh, go for it on fourth and 23rd, uh, 23 or something. And it was very hard to defend against him because he wasn't really doing anything that really followed any logical pattern. And, you know, uh, Trump has continued to do this. And so uh, on the stimulus package, 
He sent his people to Capitol Hill. He sent Mnuchin and a bunch of other people there, and they bargained hard to keep the direct payments down to 600. And then, you know, in, in the 11th hour, Trump suddenly announced that the whole thing is a disgrace uh, and the, the personal payments should be 2,000. You know, there were 18 different things he could have done uh, along the way. Uh, if he was really serious about that, including immediately veto the bill and begin negotiating with Congress to get it up to 2000. But it was really like playing a kid in, in Madden. You know, I mean, he just he does the, whatever pops into his head and it doesn't have to follow any particular logical sequence. So this this much needed stimulus pack, package was almost derailed on a complete 11th hour whim that had no correspondence to the White House's behavior leading up to that moment. Kevin, do you want to weigh in on the also, president's well, strategy? Well, my uh, my recollection is that there was a one point eight trillion dollar stimulus mm. package that was pending, and and uh, the Senate uh, had agreed to uh, for a few months uh, during the campaign, and uh, Nancy Pelosi would uh, rejected the one point eight trillion dollar package, and uh, there was that. Uh, uh, notable moment, I think it was with Jake Tapper when she accused him. When he essentially said, well, "What's wrong with 1.8 trillion?" and she accused him of uh, of uh, mouthing Republican talking points. So there have been the, the long gap between uh, the spring package and then what they're doing now. There, there was something, and there was something that that could have been done. Um, and it and it just it wasn't. I think, you know, I think there was some reluctance on the part of House Democrats, or at least on Nancy Pelosi's part, to have Donald Trump sending out uh, checks uh, a few weeks before the election. Mm. And uh, this, the pandemic, uh, has played a big part in the in the campaigns of this year. Mm. Yeah, I didn't want to uh, miss uh, talking about uh, some of the other uh, big movements we saw in this last year uh, beyond uh, how we respond uh, to coronavirus. Uh, Bilal, so many uh, Americans taking to the streets again uh, to talk about uh, police accountability and, and wanting racial justice. And we can't forget that uh, that was a movement that was very strong. Uh, and we wonder, I, I wonder what's going to happen with that in 2021. Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, it, it was a powerful movement, probably the most powerful movement, certainly since the, the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And we saw, you know, more than 10,000 marches, big and small across the country. Hundreds of thousands of people were out in the streets, you know, demanding um, racial and economic justice. You know, certainly what ignited that was the brutal um, murder, in my mind, of George Floyd. And that really triggered a response, a response that had been building for a number of years. We often um, mistake, you know, these sort of flashpoints as being the cause of these, uh, you know, reactions. And in fact, these kinds of uprisings are, are really rooted in very deep structural inequities that exist within the society. And that be, those you know, moments become the spark for people coming out into, into the streets. And I think you know, what's been amazing about what happened during the summer was that 
you know, Black Lives Matter was a kind of pejorative among many uh, white Americans. But during the summer, we saw lots of white people, especially young white people out in the streets marching alongside black activists and organizers demanding things ranging from police accountability to even defunding the police and the abolition of the police. But if you look really deeply at what people were really talking about, they were talking about some of the larger, more structural, more deeply rooted racial and economic inequities in our country. They were talking about the problems of, with the healthcare system, with the prison industrial complex. They were talking about the problems of joblessness and unemployment and abandonment of urban communities. And so this is a very big movement. There's a lot of work to be done. There have been some reforms that have certainly occurred, Connecticut and its police accountability bill, but there is so much more to be done. And I think people are really committed to doing that work and, a, and, a, and that commitment is not just on the part of, of black Americans, but it's also many whites, many other Latinos and many other people of color who are also interested in moving this work forward. And so I'm very mm -hmm. optimistic about what will happen in the next few years on this front, but it's a lot of work that needs to be done. Bilal, uh, do you think that we can look to this movement as one of the reasons we had such historic uh, numbers of people voting in November? Absolutely. I think there is a direct line, you know, that connects what happened during the summer in the sense that people need change. And, the only, you know, one of the ways to bring about that change is obviously through the ballot box. But I think also importantly that, you know, what's needed is grassroots efforts. You know, people at the local level who are putting pressure on government at the local level, like they did in places like Minneapolis and Seattle and other cities across the country to bring about change. And so while certainly electoral politics is an important tool in the toolkit, um, grassroots mobilization, organizing and activism at the local level will be as critical, if not more critical, um, especially at this particular moment, and also, I was also moved by the large number of young people who are out in the streets doing this work. And so once again, the potential to really make some inroads and some real movement on these deeply rooted problems we have in our society um, are, you know, the possibility is there. And I think the recognition, people who traditionally would say, ah, black people are making that up about what the police do. They watched an eight minute video of a man being murdered with the knee to his neck. And I think for a lot of people who tend to make excuses about um, police brutality and police violence in communities of color, they can no longer make those excuses. Mm. So, Kevin, uh, now we have a president-elect, but there is a high uh, percentage of Republicans who still believe this election was rigged and that Joe Biden is not a legitimate uh, president-elect. Uh, what do you see happening uh, in 2021? How will this play out? Well, some of, a lot of that may uh, be determined uh, on Tuesday with the two Georgia Senate runoff races. Uh, a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House uh, will be uh, Joe Biden will be able to get a lot more accomplished, I think, than if uh, if the Republicans have fifty-two seats in the Senate. I, I you know, I think there are a there are some Republicans who who would uh, meet him uh, 
wherever, I won't say halfway, but at least be cooperative and uh, have the same goals. Uh, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski. Um, but if they're not, if uh, uh, it's, it's tough, as we're seeing in the Senate, we're seeing it right now. If you're, if, if the person who is in control and the majority leader's job has an enormous amount of power that I think most Americans have not recognized until recently. Just that one person, no matter what the other senators may think, is enormous is an enormous amount of power. And uh, so I think we don't we don't know yet. And um, the Republicans picked up a lot of seats for uh, uh, in this election in the House of with uh, with Joe Biden winning by seven million votes. That is. Something was going on that I think was undetected. And uh, certainly, even at 50 seats uh, for the Republicans, that that's more than what most people expected on Election Day before the votes began to be counted. And um, there there are some deep divides. It, 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 it's a good thing that Joe Biden is the was the one who was ele- who was nominated by the Democrats, because I think he's probably the only one among the Democratic contenders who could have won and then and then could have made some progress in uh, in some unity in Congress. Mm. And Colin, last word, uh, are you hopeful for 2021? Um, in the ways that we're talking about right now, I'm somewhat hopeful. I, I'm I, I, I just I worship everything that Bilal said. I don't know. You know, I mean, you look at Columbus, Ohio, these two shootings in three weeks, the latter. Andre Hill uh, lay on the ground for six minutes before anybody even went to his side. On our man shot. They put up crime scene tape before they went to help him. Um, I just wonder what, what's it going to take for police uh, departments to get that kind of message. In, in terms of what Kevin's saying, I do think leadership is really important. I mean, the, ultimately, Donald Trump accomplished very few of the things that he said he would which is actually probably good news. But I mean, the wall's not built. There's no substitute for the Affordable Care Act. The infrastructure stuff uh, never really happened. There was sort of a massive tax cut that largely favored the rich. Surprise, surprise. You know, I I think you'll see Biden. He's going to be a much more efficient uh, leader of a very efficient policy uh, um, pushing administration. You could probably see a lot of a lot of little changes. I mean, I should say Trump did a lot of stuff in terms of despoiling the environment and letting people drill in places they shouldn't be drilling and stuff like that. I, I do think the chances that you'll see good government, just competent, good government that helps more than it hurts. I think that's very, very high for the next four years. That's Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show here on The Wheelhouse with Kevin Rennie, Hartford Current columnist and co-host of Face the State and WFSB, and Bilal Saku, Associate Professor of Politics and Government at the University of Hartford. Coming up, we reflect on Donald Trump's presidential pardons. Also, who's got their eye on Connecticut's next gubernatorial election? That's after the break. The 
This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With us today, Kevin Rennie, Hartford Current columnist, co-host of Face the State and WFSB, also a former state lawmaker. Balasik Koo, Associate Professor of Politics and Government at the University of Hartford. And Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show. Now, as his time in office winds down, President Trump has been issuing pardons. Kevin, you've got some thoughts on a possible pardon scenario. Tell us about it. <laughs> Well, these pardons, uh, they take a very mysterious path. And I suggested that uh, if Donald Trump uh, really wanted to infuriate John Durham, who was, the, who was our Connecticut U.S. attorney and is the, has been appointed as special prosecutor to investigate the FBI's investigation of the 2016 election, that if he really wanted to make uh, John Durham unhappy because he is he is himself unhappy with John, John Durham. He could pardon uh, uh, John Rowland because John uh, that was a the um, prosecution of John Rowland, which was preceded by him resigning as governor in 2004. Uh, that was a big, big moment in John Durham's uh, career as a prosecutor. Mm. And that certainly would make him unhappy which it seems like Donald Trump would like to do. And uh, there's also uh, Donald Trump, I think, uh, uh, likes Joe Gannam, the mayor of Bridgeport. Uh, they were worked together when uh, uh, the expansion of casino gaming was uh, on the, high on the public agenda in Connecticut in the early 90s. And Donald Trump, as a defensive measure, wanted to uh, have a casino in, uh, in Bridgeport. That didn't happen, but I believe at the time uh, that's when he made that appalling comment about uh, Native Americans and casinos about them. Not, mm. I believe he said they don't look like Indians to me. <laughs> a blow uh, to borrow you know, a term. No <laughs> one, anyone who says they are surprised by what Donald Trump was has been like as president simply is either either did not pay attention or is not telling the truth. Mm. Bilal, to borrow, borrow a term from Joe Biden, is what Kevin talking about, a bunch of malarkey here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that's my hope. And, and I definitely <laughs> want to leave time for Colin to rant about why Roland shouldn't get a pardon. But, you know, <laughs> among the many things that are just amazing about, you know, this moment is that the pardon power is being used the way this president is using it. Um, it is it, he, he's using it in a very abusive way. He's using it to reward, you know, friends who protected him um, and people he believes perhaps can be a liability in the future with regard to any kind of, you know, prosecution at the federal level. And so, you know, as Kevin said, I, I, I won't be surprised, you know, what happens, you know, with this president. It wouldn't surprise me if he were to do that, but I know Colin is thinking about cars and hot tubs about right now, so I'll I'll let him. <laughs> Colin, gift certificates. I, I don't particularly care whether he pardons Roland or not, but um, like I feel like the point has been made that needed to be made. Um, although I will say that John Roland went on my former station WTIC with his friend Pastor Will a few weeks ago and spent an hour, the two of them, undermining. COVID-19 policy suggesting it was a government plot to break up families and suffocate religion. Uh, and so he's not through doing harm to the world. Uh, no, I just would quickly say that I, I think, first of all, one of the most interesting things about this is that Bovada, which is an online betting 
uh, uh, service, which is having trouble finding things to get people to bet on because sports aren't happening quite as much. Uh, they actually do offer odds on various um, pardons. Uh, they got Manafort right. He was he was their favorite uh, with a negative 400. Uh, and so you can actually place a bet on, on whether, for example, Trump will pardon Garrett, Jared Kushner or one of his actual children. Um, There's sort of odds all over the place. I mean, Trump is typically right now he's he's not reaching into the hinterlands of Connecticut to pardon people other than Manafort, if you count him. But uh, he's he's pardoning people close to him who could do him damage. Uh pardoning people close to him who have conveniently shut up uh, when when needed. He's pardoning uh, members of Congress, uh, former members of Congress who uh, were disgraced. He's pardoning war criminals uh, like the Blackwater people. Uh, I don't think I think we're a little bit too, you know, Christmas in Connecticut to (laughs) to attract his attention right now. Kevin, do you agree with that? If if the president wanted to get John Durham, why don't they just fire him? Well, th- th- this is their dilemma: is that they 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 appointed him to that position so that it would, so that when he resigns as U.S. Attorney in Connecticut, as as traditionally U.S. attorneys do with, with the uh, inauguration of the new president, uh, they want to keep him in there. But he's just he in his uh, in his uh, perpetual rage. Uh, the rage doesn't stop. It's just the topic of the rage or the target of the rage stops. It changes um, that I, you know, I just think he, you know, he, he's one moment. He's happy that the, that he's, that it's being investigated. And the other moment he's unhappy that there's been no, uh, there's been no, no damning report, probably because there, there's, there's not going to be a damning report. Uh, when your campaign has hundreds of contacts with, um, with Russian assets and others sympathetic to Russia, including your campaign manager, that there's, you know, we 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 hope the FBI takes notice of that, and that's what they did, and it was it had nothing to do with uh, Russian orphans, and um, so you know he's latched onto this, but uh, I think a lot of it just depends on what kind of mood he's in and what he's seen on one of his cable news uh binges and um i i think I, I just do disagree with colin on on this a lot of it is who can get in front of him it doesn't mm-hmm. matter from where but but who can get in front of him you know that if you i think it was rob uh blagojevich's wife who got onto um fox news and she managed to get a uh a, you know, that's how she she got uh, i think a commutation for, for her husband and and a uh, police officer in Maryland who, uh, who who was sentenced to 10 years in prison for for uh, uh, using a police uh, attack dog uh, to uh, to practice on uh, on someone on, on a homeless guy. It, um, he pardoned her. Uh, so I think it's more than just who's, that's a real miracle on 34th Street story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It just kind of warms the heart. Who's having you know who's that Mar-a-Lago? I, I do I do think there are ways into the president. And just as a reminder, you know this uh, other presidents. No, not to the extent that that uh, Donald Trump is doing, but other presidents have. You know, Bill Clinton and um, uh, pardoned his brother-in-law um, on his way out the door, and. Um, uh, I hope that uh, that what happened in 2001, which was terrible, uh, 
has not normalized in any way the misuse of the pardon power. We'll leave it there. Uh, coming up after the break, we're going to talk about 2022 and the gu- next gubernatorial election. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, we've been talking about 2020 a lot today, but some political junkies are interested in 2022. That's when Connecticut's next gubernatorial election will be held. Assuming Ned Lamont runs for re-election, the Republicans will be faced with the prospect of challenging a sitting governor who's become quite popular during the pandemic. Uh, Colin, what are your thoughts on does the state GOP really stand a chance if uh, Governor Lamont runs for re-election? Well, yeah, first of all, I should say that I made the mistake of saying multiple times uh, that I didn't think he would seek re-election. He clearly does plan to seek re-election. Um, things can change uh, in the window that still exists, but that's sort of where we are. Um, you know, I, I don't see how they – I think he's going to be a very popular governor, despite the fact that he's had to make hard choices and people haven't always loved those hard choices. I think he's going to be a very po- popular incumbent. I think also the, the GOP right now – uh, I, I feel as though they're vulnerable simply because right now, Republican hopefuls for the gubernatorial nomination, they're kind of prisoners of the base. And the base includes a lot of Trump voters. So, I mean, we, we, ha- we are still in the middle of what, you know, it's really just a matter of semantics and nomenclature, whether you would want to call this an attempted coup. But, you know, we really have a president who does not want to accept the results of a free and fair election. This is an emergency uh, and the Republican Party here in Connecticut has been, you know, there are more Republican office holders, low level office holders and office seekers who've posted memes defaming uh, Kamala Harris for, you know, alleged sex acts that she never committed. Then there are Republicans who stood up and said, look, this is an election. It happened. The results are in. Trump has to stop the madness. You know, and I think for young voters, that may become kind of an issue. Like, where were you guys when there was a real basic uh, question in civics here? Um, that, uh, having said all that, I think Themis Claritis is going to run for governor. I think she's going to be a formidable candidate. Stefanowski will get back in. There'll, there'll be a few others. I think Kevin has kind of written about the field uh, already. I mean, there are no gimmies or layups or anything in Connecticut gubernatorial politics. Republicans do win elections here. Uh, they've done it as recently as Roland and Rell. So, you know, I mean, there'll be a fight. I just don't think the Republicans are starting from a particularly strong position this time. Mm, Kevin, what's your take on this uh, since you have written about it? First, they have to have some ideas yes. of what they would like to do as governor. That was a good and column, I, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Because I, I've i noticed, and it is, it, it is more a Republican uh, condition in Connecticut, I think because they're, they're so outnumbered, but a, a lot of candidates uh, decide they, they, they run for office, and while they're running, they think it is a hunt for ideas. They don't understand that really the best candidates are compelled to run by the ideas they already possess and believe in. And I, you know, I look at the, the, the candidates now that it, I shouldn't say candidates, but as some of the prospects, I don't really see a great big idea factory there uh, with any of them. But there are things that um, that Ned Lamont has not addressed, uh, may not be inclined to address. Uh, I think that. 
uh, and I've written many times, we are all in his debt for the way that he conducted himself uh, in in these past nine months. Uh, with an extended state of emergency, he has been a model of restraint and um, and also in just in his personal demeanor. Uh, but <laughs> in American politics, two years is a long time. That that will be a kind of a distant memory by the time we get to a, 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 a gubernatorial election. And I think you know, just on the uh, uh, Colin has mentioned Themis Claritas. I know he's, he's he's mentioned before. He is friends with her. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in twenty two years in office in uh, in the legislature, and some of those years in a really responsible uh, leadership position. I I do not, I can't associate one significant idea or accomplishment with her. And you know when you have these legislators, Republican legislators who've been around a long time, they really are establishment figures. They love being on the inside. They often will settle for crumbs uh, when it comes time to get things done. And uh, I don't think that today's Republican Party is really inclined to support someone like that. So do you anticipate Bob Stefanowski will be back, Kevin? I do. I do. And because I was I was exchanging by phone Christmas uh, wishes with one of my neighbors. And uh, she's a she that uh, she is a lifelong Republican. And uh, she mentioned she's gotten a Christmas card from Bob and Amy Stefanowski. Oh, he ne- and, he never uh, went so, away. Right. I mean, he sort of had a sort of government in exile yeah, for the last two around. years. Yes. Yep. Yep, and campaigning in special elections, campaigning in municipal elections, harder to campaign this year. But I said to my neighbor, were you a contributor? No, I wouldn't do contribute to him. She voted for him, but is a primary voter. And so to to get to that level, you sent out a lot of Christmas cards. Now, here's the funny part. She said that I think this is the first time she's ever do this. She likes Ned Lamont a lot. She's mm-hmm. come to like him very much and has every intention of voting for him for uh, re-election. And uh, th- without going into too many details, I, I think that will be the first Democrat for governor that she's voted for. And she's been an adult for a long time. And I, I just think that Ned Lamont has made a, a really human connection apart from politics and public policy that he has been a force and a presence for good in this uh, traumatic year. And we'll have to leave it there just for full disclosure. I'm sorry, I wrote uh, it too long. I apologize. No, full disclosure, the Stefanowski sent me a Christmas card, but I did not get any Christmas card from Governor Lamont. What's up with that, Governor? What's up with that? Lucy, are you, are you a Republican primary voter? <laughs> We're going to have to start with feats. We'll, we can talk later, Kevin. Ready? <laughs> Velocity coup. Feats of strength are airing of grievances. That's my grievance. No Christmas card from Governor Lamont. Well, if, I, if I've got to pick a, a feat of strength for this year, it is to young people from K through 12 through higher ed who have tried to get an education under what has been a really horrible set of circumstances. Many young people in K through 12 don't have access to the internet and have been frozen out of educational opportunity. K through 12 is someone who, I mean, someone who teaches at a university I personally witnessed the struggles and difficulties. So my feat of strength is to those students who have hung in there and have really tried to make something out of this. And also those people who weren't able to hang in there, my hope is that they will be able to get it together soon. Colin McEnroe. 
Um, uh, feats of strength, the strength of some journalists who really have uh, developed a tremendous amount of expertise or already had it in covering the pandemic. Uh, I'll single out uh, Ed Young. His writing for The Atlantic mm-hmm. is indispensable. You have to read it. Uh, Apoorva Mandavili uh, from The New York Times has now uh, become somebody who really has sort of mastered a lot of complex medical science and, and, and spread it out to a lot of people. I'm just going to quickly say on a personal note, uh, this year, uh, the two people closest to me in my life both have been trapped in horrible medical crises. Uh, uh, and the result is just uh, so much kindness that I've experienced from people. Uh, everybody who knows about it has offered to help in some way. Danny Har from the Wheelhouse was on my doorstep with a banana bread he'd made for me the mm. other day. So thanks to all of the people who've really helped me out, especially thanks to Hope Cameron, who has been my rock uh, through the last few months uh, here. Um, but th- th- people are nice. People are good. We should never forget <laughs> that. And Kevin Rennie. I want to salute uh, our senior United States Senator, Richard Blumenthal, for uh, what he is trying to do to uh, help uh, freedom's friends in Hong Kong and allowing them, uh, some of, more of them to come to the United States as uh, the communist government in uh, China uh, uh, tightens its grip on, uh, on Hong Kong and tries to extinguish freedom there. And uh, to uh, my dismay and to his disgrace forever, Ted Cruz uh, stopped that that uh, a new a bill that would have allowed that to happen uh, in the Senate uh, just before Christmas, uh, claiming that it would allow chance for China to plant spies in the United States as if they didn't already have spies in the United States. But Richard Blumenthal uh, doing the right thing. uh, And uh, and um, I hope that he will uh, come back next year. And, uh, and try to get that bill passed again, because uh, whatever traumas we've had this year, people still want to come to the United States, and we need to welcome them. That's Kevin Rennie, Hartford Current columnist and the co-host of Face the State and WFSB. Thank you, Kevin. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Thank you, Lucy. Happy Thanks New so much Year. to Bilal Sikhu, Associate Professor of Politics and Government at the University of Hartford. Bilal, it's always a pleasure. Thanks again. And Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show. We thank you as well, and we are also thinking about you and your loved ones. I want to give a feat of strength to our great producer here, Matt Dwyer. He does a great job, and we are grateful for him. Also, thanks to Cat Pastor, our technical producer. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We'll be back next week. <laughs>